0: Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello everybody, my name is Zoe O'Neill and I'm a second year medical student at McGill University. I'm joined today by my colleague, Madison Lee Gali, a third year medical student at McGill. We are so excited to introduce our guest for today, Derek Debraca. Derek is a mental health therapist based in Montreal. He completed his undergraduate training at Concordia and then went on to receive his master's degree in counseling psychology from Yorkville University. Derek has a particular focus on integrative harm reduction approaches for substance misuse and behavioral addictions. While there is so much that we could potentially explore with you, Derek, today's episode is going to focus on how mindfulness practices can be a component of working with patients with substance use disorders, misuse, and addiction more generally. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's really important that we place this conversation in our current context. Most people who are listening to this conversation are going to be familiar with the ongoing opioid crisis in Canada and North America. There were almost 3,000 deaths related to prescription opioids in 2019 amongst Canadians, and over the past few years, illicit fentanyl has also been a major contributor to drug-related deaths in Canada. Unfortunately, this has only been exacerbated by the current COVID-19 pandemic. But all of that said, opioids are far from the only drugs that can be misused and abused. And I think it's important that medical students recognize the potential harms of other drugs too. So Derek, what can you tell us about the landscape of drug misuse in Canada and perhaps Montreal more specifically?
1: Sure, I think to to answer that question, I might have to speak to just my own experience. Um, I don't know much about the statistics About what's going on in Canada and Montreal specifically, I was working at a public treatment center here in Montreal up until last year, and and moved to working privately as a as a private therapist at a clinic here in Montreal. So, my my involvement in that kind of specific information is has changed a little bit, and I would say that while the opioid use um, and the effects that it has on people is uh, a really big issue all across Canada. Over the last 10 years, I, te- I noticed I saw it a lot less than what is publicized in other parts of the country. Maybe that, it, not to say that it doesn't exist uh, and that it isn't a big problem here, but that in the treatment centers and people that are actually seeking treatment, um, I didn't find that that was the predominant substance that people were uh we're, we're asking for help for, to be honest. Um, so in my private practice, it's it's something that I see. Um, I definitely see it. There's a lot of people coming in for various substances, but opioids don't tend to be something that um, we're seeing a lot in the private sector, uh, at least right now.
2: Mm-hmm. So just to follow up on that, what kinds of trends in in drug use and misuse are you seeing in your practice um, that we should be aware of
1: it's much more common for me to see people that are presenting with issues related to alcohol and cocaine um, again I don't want to make it seem like the opioid issue is not a problem um, I'm sure there's a lot of factors that could explain why we're seeing less of that maybe in the private sector or maybe even in the public sector uh, or in the populations that I see um, but alcohol tends to be something that people, Um, Tend to seek help for at least uh, in in my experience and cocaine as well, those two substances are stand out for me as being definitely the most predominant uh, substances that people are seeking help for.
3: Perfect. So uh, now that we have a better understanding of the Canadian context uh, for substance use, um, I think it's important that we define some terms so that all of our listeners are on the same page. So how would you define substance misuse and how does this differ to substance abuse if there is a distinction? Mm -hmm.
1: That's a good question. And I'll be honest with your audience and with both of you that thinking about that question before, um, I had a little bit of trouble. Um, It's not an easy question to answer. And maybe that's just because of my perspective on that question. Um, Because I think it's really subjective. Um, The term substance abuse and substance misuse is, is quite common, and a lot of people use those terms. And I think that what one person might define as abusing a substance or misusing a substance could be very different from what somebody else sees. Um, so I think both of those terms, while they're relevant, um, it's much more nuanced than that, and it's not it's it's not a very black and white distinction. Um, I think when we define addiction, I'm tempted to use I, I really um, I really like the work of Gabor Mate. Um, and his approach to treating um, substance use uh, and addiction. So I like his definition, and he talks about addiction being um, any behavior or any substance that people crave, that people um, find relief in or pleasure in, uh, and that there are negative consequences from, and that people have trouble giving up. So people can use various substances. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think inherently there's anything wrong with substances themselves. And it's the way that we interact with them that can be problematic. So to, to use the word abuse of a substance, I, I don't really, I, I try not to use that. It doesn't really fit with the approach that I like to take or at least the understanding. Um, it's more around the context of how that influences their lives and their behaviors.
3: Great, thank you. and. What would you say is a behavioral addiction? Is it considered separate to a substance misuse or is it really a necessary part of it?
1: Um, a behavioral addiction is any addiction that doesn't involve ingesting a substance, uh, I really believe. And, and like the definition I, I just gave, um, it's really anything that people can become dependent on or that provide that kind of relief or pleasure uh, temporarily. Things like gambling, food, sex, um, other kinds of uh, experiences, shopping, um, all of those things are behaviors that a lot of us engage in, uh, and some of us engage in them to a point where it becomes problematic. So I think that's the, the distinction there um, between a behavioral addiction and a substance addiction is really just the context of ingesting something uh, or it being more of a behavior that becomes problematic.
0: So just to summarize that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like behavioral and substance addictions are quite similar in the way that they can impact one's life. They both have the potential to cause dysfunction, and that's an important component of their diagnosis. And then really the distinction between them is that a substance addiction involves a substance that causes a significant impairment in function, and a behavioral addiction involves a behavior that causes impairment.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah, you, you explained it very well. I think when we understand addiction and we understand substance use as being a coping mechanism to deal with difficult circumstances, pain, emotional pain, traumatic experiences, relationship difficulties, we really start to understand that it's not about the behavior or the substance itself. It's really about the underlying issues that we're trying to either escape from or get some relief from and Mm -hmm. and if we can understand it that way well i think that we address the individual much more than the act or the substance
0: yeah i think that's such a beautiful way to sum it up and a great reminder to always bring it back to the patient as an individual so another bonus of doing this podcast is learning a little bit about how different professionals who incorporate mindfulness into their work ended up where they are. I think we're both curious about how you found your way to being a mental health therapist. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, so it started with just deciding uh, and maybe some pressure from my family to go to university and not really knowing what I wanted to study. I took a really exciting course uh, when I was at Dawson on psychology 101. The teacher was cool. Um, and I was like, well, I guess I'll go into psychology and study that and see what comes out of it. Not really thinking about uh, an end goal, not really realizing that uh, a therapist or a counselor or even a psychologist could be a potential career opportunity, but being more curious about human behavior. I think unconsciously also wanting to understand my own suffering and my own pain that I went through um, throughout my life at certain points, but that only came much later uh, when I gained some insight, going through therapy myself and and, uh, gaining some insight. So. My curiosity for human behavior, I think at the time was what really drove me to take some courses and to get a degree in psychology and from there having met to explore the work of becoming a therapist or a counselor. And uh, after I graduated it was really towards the end of getting my bachelor's degree that one of my teachers said you should consider a master's degree um, and consider being a therapist. Um, I think you'd be, you'd be good at it. And I looked into a little bit and saw what that would look like. And, um, and I just, I guess from there on, it seemed like it was a good fit. And, uh, I, I guess, you know, cliche to say, but i never, never looked back. And it's always from then on, it's been something that I've always felt really kind of fit with, um, what I wanted to do with, um, with the knowledge that I gained throughout my life
2: yeah incredible. So I'm really interested in how you ended up being even more focused kind of on addictions and substance misuse and and your it seems that your practice like revolves a lot around that population so how did how did that happen?
1: it That was by chance. Um, I was volunteering at a yoga studio in Montreal, moksha yoga um still affiliated with them. It's an amazing studio if everybody knows if anybody knows it. I was volunteering my time there. You could volunteer four hours of your time and you can get free yoga. So I was doing that while I was in school and I met another trade that was there volunteering her time. And she was working at an organization called Foster's and it's a public um, treatment center for the Anglophone population in Quebec. One of the only public treatment centers actually for English speaking um, Quebecers. And she suggested, I was just finishing my degree and she suggested that I apply for work and there's very few places for uh, a student uh, or somebody who's just graduated um, to work as a therapist in the public system. So I was it was either working there or a CLSC, and I thought I thought it was quite exciting. So I applied and I got the job right away, and that was about 10 years ago. And um, it's been an incredible journey. You know, there was a, when I started working there, there was a lot of really um, great therapists and some good training programs too, and taught me a lot. And just through meeting different people and honestly, through working with different clients, you know, I learned so much from all of the clients that I've worked with along the way. Um, I guess evolved my professional career to to where it is now. And it's been, I guess at some point I decided that this was definitely a population that I enjoyed working with, that I could resonate with. Um, And understanding addiction in my own way also, and having had experiences with addiction in various ways, myself and people that I knew, um, I, I was able to connect with it uh, in, in a lot of ways, so yeah, that's that's kind of how I got to this field specifically.
2: And kind of an extension of that, I'm really curious about how mindfulness and kind of incorporating mindfulness-based practices for your patients. When did when did that enter the picture? Uh, like understanding that you've been doing this for 10 years and at least from my reading of the literature, it seems that mindfulness-based interventions are only kind of recently almost being realized as being incredibly useful tools for this particular population. So I'm really curious, how did that come into the picture?
1: I think it started in my undergrad. Um, there was a class that I took, it was called Motivation and Emotion, and the the professor, uh, I'm going to name him here, just um because he's he, he had such a big impact on my life uh and in the beginning of my career Dr. Harry Galina and he introduced me to some alternative or or I should say complementary therapies and as I was exploring that and going to school my sister and um my my father and my stepmother were also going to yoga and they kind of introduced me and, and encouraged me to take a yoga class And I guess at that time I was curious and I started practicing more and more, started meditating a little bit. And um, that was kind of separate from my professional career for years. And then as I decided I was gonna become a therapist and as my career kind of started to um, gain some momentum, um, I got more and more curious about how I can utilize that in the work uh, in substance use. And it's also part of certain treatment modalities uh, in substance use like, dialectical behavior therapy as a component of mindfulness in it, which um, in my training early on was, was something that I realized, oh, well, you know, I've kind of been involved with that already, so it makes sense. And then going forward, taking a training at Mindspace, or, or I should say the eight-week MBSR program through Mindspace a few years ago, really kind of kicked things into gear for me and gave me the confidence to bring that kind of personal practice into my work. And since then I've been, you know, kind of, uh, I'm, tem- I'm, I'm hesitant to say teaching meditation because I'm not a meditation teacher, but, you know, meditating with clients, meditating with um, people that I work with and groups and really sharing that kind of practice with people. Um, and that, and now it's become a much bigger part of the work that I do kind of taking the, the the center stage because of the impact that it has had on me and the impact that I see it has on the people that I work with.
3: Great. So um, running off of that idea, um, mindfulness we know is uh, obviously proven to have many benefits and has been used as an, an intervention for many different conditions, whether that be chronic or, or acute. And I guess the issue is it can sometimes exacerbate certain psychological symptoms, certain states in, in individuals who practice it for the first time. So what would you say are some of the kinds of things that you would look for in a client that you're, that you're uh, interacting with, Um, to know whether or not mindfulness would be something that would be useful for them in terms of their therapy um, and trying to decide, you know, the weighing the pros and cons, will this be harmful for them in this current moment?
1: That's a good question. And I think the term mindfulness is so broad, Uh, it could mean so many different things. So maybe I'll start off by saying that I think everybody is eligible for some sort of mindfulness, um, uh, practice or mindfulness, um, some sort of connection to the mindfulness practice in, in varied ways there, you know, I don't really think that it can have any adverse effects when we talk about mindfulness in general, meditation is a bit different and the intensity of a meditation, um, Could be problematic for some people. But the truth is that there isn't a lot of evidence out there um, that mindfulness or even meditation is dangerous. I mean, maybe when we get into certain psychiatric uh, illnesses, uh, maybe somebody suffering from hallucinations, auditory or visual, I think that would be a red flag for me right off the bat. I'm not seeing clients like that in my private practice, anyways. I would refer a client out who uh, had those symptoms. Um, But that being said, everybody can benefit from the practice of awareness and noticing. And it might be as simple as noticing your feet on the ground, noticing your breath or noticing the color on the trees as you're walking down the street. So you can start quite simple. um, And I really make it a point of introducing that understanding to all of my clients. It's part of my practice now. And especially in private practice, having the privilege to, um, to take my own approach now uh, and be much more free to work in my own kind of way, um, all of my clients get introduced to this idea of noticing and sensing the body and um, our our current state or or the present moment in a lot of ways.
3: So I guess what you're saying is uh, as you sort of have this practice that has become your own, you've sort of incorporated mindfulness-based strategies in sort of as a thread in all of your encounters with your your clients, but can you speak to maybe uh, specific techniques that you've that you've tried with patients who are being treated for substance use?
1: Absolutely. Well, I run um, a mindfulness-based relapse prevention group um, once a week, Thursday evenings, and we start with a meditation. We start with just a, a um, introductory kind of body scan. I call it a mindfulness exercise because some people are afraid of the idea of meditating. And um, right off the bat, people are saying, "Oh, I don't meditate. I, don't, I can't do that. I've tried before. It's not for me. So I don't call it a meditation, but secretly it's what it is uh, in a sense. We, so what we're doing is really a body scan, just starting off by noticing the body. Um, and I also do this with all of my sessions now, um, just kind of introducing or, or opening the, the session with a practice of paying attention to our feet on the floor, going through the body, feeling your butt in the chair, feeling your shoulders, feeling some of the muscles in your body. You know, Everybody can do that for a second or two. And that has a really powerful effect of connecting to the physical experience in the moment. And that sets the stage for, um, for the session and sets the stage for a feeling sometimes of, of safety, feeling of uh, security, in the moment, not for everybody, you know, it doesn't, the, the practice isn't meant to relax you necessarily. Uh, it's really about noticing. So I, tr- I try to start gently by encouraging some of those more simpler techniques of just paying attention to either your environment or your body first, and then getting into um, different types of maybe more uh, contemplative or, or restful kind of meditation practices later on, once someone feels comfortable with that.
2: And so can you speak to a little bit about why these, uh, these mindfulness-based techniques that you're using with these patients, why do you think that it's so useful, if, if, you, if that's what you find? Um, is there any evidence in the literature for why it actually works with this patient population?
1: Absolutely. Yes, it, it's useful. Um, definitely in my practice, I can see the benefits, and there, there is research around Using mindfulness-based techniques for behavioral addictions and substance use um, issues, a lot of the a lot of what I've read and what I understand about its uh, the mechanisms that are at play is its ability to help people manage cravings, manage triggers, and by being present and by activating uh, that prefrontal cortex by getting. The part of our brain that's able to make decisions back online, giving us the ability to kind of um, access the present moment and notice and be aware in that sense has um, profound impact on our ability to manage distress, anxiety, um, emotions that are coming up. It also cultivates compassion, compassion for the self, sometimes compassion for others, which is very powerful. Um, It also changes the locus of control, I think for some people from being external to being internal. And that can be very empowering for a lot of people. I think that's a big part of it. Um, And some of the research shows that too. Uh, There's a lot of mechanisms, there's a lot of ways that it helps. Uh, For some people it can be even just calming, you know, as a a somatic uh, treatment, uh, you know, slowing down the body, slowing down the heart rate, getting ourselves to feel a little bit calmer, a little bit safer really opens up the door to being um, more receptive to the, the treatment process and, and, and managing some of the difficult moments that we, all, that we all live through and people with dealing with substance use issues, um, I guess, interfering with that automatic response to reach out or to consume or to engage in something um, addictive or problematic like that.
2: It's really reassuring, actually, to hear about all of these underlying mechanisms because I think as uh, clinicians, it's, it often feels like a very difficult thing to broach with a patient and substance use and misuse can often feel really uh, tricky to treat. Um, so that's, that's really reassuring. And I'm curious now, what are some of, those, some of the bigger challenges that you come across when you're using these tools um, with these patients?
1: I think the biggest challenge is the individuals themselves who have this belief that they're not able to meditate, and and what people mostly understand mindfulness as—I don't want to say mostly necessarily—but a lot of people, um, a lot of people think of mindfulness as meditation exclusively. So right off the bat, people will be resistant and say, "No, that's not for me." That approach—I'm not interested in that approach. I don't want to use it. Um. let's not go there. Let's talk about how I can change in another way. Um, and, and I think at the core of a lot of these treatments, it's getting in touch with and or interfering with that part of ourselves that has these kinds of core beliefs um, that um, cause us to be hesitant or resistant or to repeat certain patterns of behavior. So yeah, the most difficult thing is just getting people to um, surrender to this idea that they can't actually do it because everybody can pay attention in, in, in a small way. And just to go a little bit further on that point, it's also not a question of having to pay attention for an extended period of time. It, you could be paying attention for half a second. And if you do that over and over again and being distracted in between, that's the practice that, you know, just noticing that you are distracted is a mindfulness moment. So it's not about having to hold your attention for an extended period of time. It's just becoming aware of where your attention is. And you can ask somebody to look out the window and describe what they see. And you know, in a way, in a lot of ways, that is mindfulness. So you can start really simple. And I think that it helps to break the ice when you kind of simplify it in that way for some people.
2: Yeah, I really like that description. I think it makes it very accessible. Um, I think mindfulness can be a bit scary and a bit woohoo for some people and it's important to kind of confront those misconceptions. So, as what, what do you think future clinicians who would, who will undoubtedly be seeing these patients and referring these patients, um, what do you think that we should know in order to best support this kind of population of people?
1: Yeah, I like that question a lot. And it's a—it's almost an emotional question for me when I hear it, because um, I, I see it so much and ha- have seen it so much over the last few years that this population gets treated very differently. And I think the most important thing to know is that people that are coming and asking for help who have a substance use issue are no different from anybody else. And sometimes they're labeled a certain way because of the way that they choose to cope the way that they choose to deal with the pain that they're going through, um, and we end up judging the person um, when what we you know we can really be judging the substance um, or their you know the, the behavior, I could say. Um, so what's really important is just to acknowledge that there is suffering. There's a lot of shame around um, struggling with addiction, and um, I think that we need to respect that. And we need to respect the struggle and the difficulty that it takes for someone in that position to just reach out in the first place, knowing that they might be labeled a certain way or they might be judged uh, and probably have already been by family members and friends. So to acknowledge our own biases, even biases around drugs ourselves. um, There's a lot of physicians that don't or never have taken drugs and that's okay. But it's important to acknowledge your bias if there is one around people who do use drugs, because there's nothing wrong with drugs in the first place. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that. Um, and so, by acknowledging that and really seeing the person for who they are, the suffering that they may have lived with or likely have at that point um, is a really important first step. And that opens the door to developing a sense of trusting and safe relationship, which is at the core of any kind of therapeutic relationship whether you're a physician a counselor a coach or a psychologist uh, if a client feels safe and you're beginning to develop trust then really you're really provide you're setting the foundation for change and change that is much easier than forcing somebody to um, make any kind of decision or make a change that um, might be less comfortable or, or, or um, more difficult, I guess.
3: Yeah, thank you. I think that's incredibly insightful. I think it is quite unfortunate. Like I, I have seen it in, uh, in real life in the hospital, unfortunately, where patients are labeled as drug seeking. And when in many cases, it's really only that they're not opioid naive and they have higher um, requirements of analgesia to have you know good coverage of their pain. And so I think you answered our question sort of how we can tell, you know, which patients really do need um, higher, let's say, a dose of opioids to cover their pain. But I was, I was wondering, have you dealt with clients who've come to you with these sort of issues where they were in the hospital system and they were refused, uh, let's say, analgesia because of labeling in terms of um, abusers of, of these drugs? And if so, what did you sort of, what approach did you take with them in terms of reassuring them um, for future use of the healthcare system, for example?
1: Yeah, that's a good question and a difficult question to answer. And and maybe I'd like to start by saying that um, some of these clients are drug-seeking. And I think it's like, you know, maybe I'm repeating myself, but that's part of the issue is that there's a reason they're drug-seeking. So I think some physicians or some professionals might get upset. Oh, well, oh, they're just drug-seeking. Well, of course they are. If you were really to take the time to consider what was going on or what had gone on in the past for some of these people, a lot of us would be drug seeking too. you know, there's a lot of pain, uh, in a lot of people's lives. There's a lot of trauma out there. Most of us have lived through trauma in one way or another. And to be completely honest, drugs do a very good job of managing that. So we need need to support that in some way. Um, and me to answer your question yeah seeing clients who have been refused or have had difficult experiences it's important to acknowledge that and to validate that experience to validate their pain but also to acknowledge and to help them understand the the challenge that the healthcare system is faced with in this um, in dealing with uh, prescription drugs um, depending on the tolerance depending on the dependency that's already been established it's not an easy thing to, to, to treat um, I think hopefully we're moving towards that with decriminalization. Um, I hope to see that here on this side of the country soon, um, or this side of the, the continent. <laughs> um, even safe injection sites and things like that. Uh, you know, I, really, I know we're moving in that direction. I think it's gonna take some time. Hopefully it doesn't take too long but really changing our relationship first. It's not so much about changing the drug user's relationship to the drugs as much as it's changing our relationship to it. And if we can decriminalize and we can speak frankly about what is really going on uh, and addressing the underlying issues, addressing the trauma that's there, I think we'll have a lot less issue uh, in, in communicating with these people in the hospital setting or in clinical settings that are seeking drugs.
3: Definitely, and I think we're fortunate in our in our training to be able to have the opportunity to have these discussions and have uh, live sessions with patients who have abused drugs and have their stories heard. I think it's very, it, it opens our eyes to these situations and to sort of the two sides of the story, definitely. And just to sort of wrap things up as we approach the end of our session, what would you say um, is the pathway that patients or clients will take to access your services and the treatments that you offer? So maybe sort of like, you know, are these services covered? um, And what are the referral pathways? How do they end up seeing you?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I work at a center now called Lighthouse Counseling Center. It's an NDG. I work with an incredible team of therapists. Um, The services I don't think are typically covered. In Quebec, you need to be a licensed psychologist uh, or psychotherapist, typically to have your services covered. By the uh, actually, RAMQ doesn't even cover that. Only private insurance would. Um, That's another thing we need to work on. But um, all that to say, we have different programs. So it's Lighthouse Counseling Center. It's an NDG, um, and we have all kinds of groups, individual work, uh, and a a really fantastic team and programs there to support the population. And I and I want to open that up to you know not just being the facility that I work at, but there are public facilities that are also available. And if you can talk to your doctor or go to a CLSC or reach out to you know where I used to work, Foster's Treatment Center, uh, if you are an Anglophone, um, I I think it's probably difficult to find online as it was when I was working there, uh, but it does exist. So going through the CLSC and the public healthcare system, you'll likely find your way there. If you're curious or have questions, you could reach out to me. You can find me on the Lighthouse Counseling Center's website. Don't hesitate to email me. Um, I think my email is Derek at CentreLighthouse.ca. And I'd be happy to help and answer questions and steer anybody in the direction uh, that they might need.
0: Derek, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. It has really been an education. More and more, we are realizing the importance of clinicians being aware of the intricacies of working with this particular population, so we really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us and contribute to that effort. I'm just wondering, as we come to the end of our time here, is there anything that we didn't get to ask you that you think is important for medical students, trainees, and ultimately clinicians to know about this topic?
1: You know, there was one question that I was thinking about earlier um, that you guys had sent me and I, and I thought about it and is what are some of the, the concerns for medical students? It, it kind of along the lines of what you just said. And what comes to mind is that, you know, there's a lot of substance use that goes unnoticed. And I think for students, it can be really easy and attractive to seek out certain stimulants, either ADHD medication or benzodiazepine, anti-anxiety medications to deal with the stress I have a sister, a little sister who's a med student. I'm not gonna name her here, but um, I love her very much, Victoria. And she's, you know, and I think about how difficult med school can be. And I know from speaking to other people uh, who have gone through the med school process and how stressful it is. And, you know, um, I just, I think it's important to be aware of some of the risks and not everybody that uses some of these substances is necessarily, using them to the point where it's causing problems but a lot of people can so i guess be mindful of when we're faced with a lot of stress in our lives like uh, school can be one of them Um, just be mindful so be there for your friends and and i guess um, try and be open-minded to asking questions and uh, courageous enough to um, to talk about to talk about this topic Um, and not in a judgmental way but in a way that is caring because um, I know that that environment, especially for med school students, can be really challenging, and I just I don't want that to be something that is kind of con- done in secret and eventually could lead to serious problems. So I think wanted to highlight that.
2: Thank you. I think that's such a wonderful note to to finish off today. Is just recognizing the importance of seeing this amongst our colleagues and and being able to lend out lend a supporting hand when when that's needed. Um, we are so grateful that you took the time to sit down with us and chat to us. This has been so interesting uh, and so informative. And I, I hope that we can chat again down the line um, when we have more questions, which I'm sure will arise about this topic.
1: I'm so grateful for you inviting me here, and I would love to continue this conversation another time. Um, thank you so much for having me. Really, it's been a pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.